Please turn with me to today's scripture reading, which comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This is the word of God. Good morning. <clears throat> you know, in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, he lists nine qualities, nine qualities of a person who's been transformed by the gospel. We know them well, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. If you're new or visiting today, that's really our series. We're going to be walking through every one of the dimensions of the fruit of the Spirit. It's one fruit. God doesn't, uh, the Apostle Paul doesn't say it's fruits of the Spirit. It's one fruit. And so we're going to be looking at these various dimensions. Today we're going to be looking at three things regarding peace. Peace is a dimension of the fruit of the Spirit. What is gospel peace? How do you cultivate it? And where's the power to get it? What is it? How do you grow it? How do you get it? First, what is it? Now, if the opposite of joy is misery, the opposite of peace then is fear. It's anxiety. There's a Greek word that uh, gives you an understanding of the word anxiety. It means to fall apart, to be torn up into pieces. And so it makes sense that in verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, do not be anxious, do not be torn up, do not, be, do not fall into pieces about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then in verse 7, what happens? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's not saying, Paul's not saying, don't care about anything. Look, if the fruit of the Spirit begins with love, and if you love anyone, you know that you're going to be burdened by that person. You know that you're going to be concerned for that person. That's love. Paul's not saying, don't care about anything. Paul's talking about anxiety, to be controlled by fear, to be controlled by our circumstances. And he's giving God's people the proper resource to deal with your anxiety, to deal with your fears. And he says, basically, he says that if you place your trust in God, and if, then you're going to have the peace of God. Place your trust in God, you're going to have the peace of God. What is it? One, at the end of this passage, verses 11 and 12, Paul says this. He says, I've learned what it means to be content. Whatever the circumstance, I've learned to be content in any and every circumstance, in any and every situation. 
Paul's talking about a, a peace that drives poise, a peace that drives contentment and strength. Now, <clears throat> we can all relate to this. A few years ago, we're still going through it. We're in the thick, we were in the thick of a pandemic. And this passage, I mean, it's become one of my favorite passages. It really spoke to me during this period of time, really spoke to me during this time. We were in the midst of a, a pandemic, racial riots in a very polarized and fragmented uh, society. So there was disease and uncertainty and, and violence. And the economy during that time was incredibly turbulent. And now we're heading into an inevitable recession uh, amidst uh, heavy inflation. So there's another wave of economic turbulence. But Paul, he wasn't experiencing the uncertainty of, you know, where's my job going to go? He wasn't sitting there and thinking about, well, um, am I going to get sick? He was in prison. He was on death row. He was being beaten. He wasn't writing this text while he was on vacation. He wasn't writing this text while he was like vacationing out in, I don't know, the Mediterranean. That's not what he was doing. He was facing death every moment, every day, chained to a member of the Praetorian Guard, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, incredibly dehumanizing. It was awful. And yet, he leads the passage. He doesn't end the passage. He leads the passage with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. When you see those things said, put together twice like that, Paul is emphasizing he's actually emotive in this. He's practically crying. He says, I want you to rejoice, he says. How can he do that? Because he's such a strong person. I mean, we look at some people and we say, I mean, he's really, really strong. He's so resilient. Is it because he was so tough? You go back to verses 11 to 12. Two times he says what? I've learned to be content. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. That's what he says. So on one hand, that means gospel peace leads to a supernatural resilience, a supernatural poise, but you can also learn it. You learn this. So that's one of the first things we see. The second thing is peace is not the absence of fear because if you were here last week, last week we were talking about joy. We said life is going to be difficult. It's always difficult. That means that there's always reasons to be fearful. There are always reasons to be anxious, really. It's a dangerous world. The Bible is very real about the world we live in. That because of sin, it is dangerous. Because of sin, you are facing death. You don't know it. You don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now in your life. That means that every day, you could be facing death. Every day, there is danger, and there's turmoil, there's turbulence in your life. Whether or not you see it, whether or not you believe it. And, and so, he, we learned last week that life is going to be difficult. Life is always hard. Peace is not the absence of fear, but it's the presence of God. Verse 6. Verse 6 says, in time, he says, in times of fear, don't let anxiety rule you. Don't be broken up and torn up to pieces because of circumstances. But in every circumstance, pray. 
Ask, present your request to God. Be thankful. With thanksgiving, he says. And then what happens? As you're doing that, verse 7, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You have the presence of God. And, and this presence protects your hearts, protects your minds. Notice, Paul doesn't say, if you pray, if you ask, if you ask with thanksgiving, God's going to protect you from disease. He's going to protect you from economic turbulence. He's going to protect you from trouble or protect you from recession. He doesn't say the peace of God is going to guard your heart and mind and body and bank accounts. That's not what he says, does he? Rather, Paul says, if you're constantly going to God with your fears, the power of God, the presence of God is with you in your heart, in your mind, protecting your heart and mind in any situation. He says it's going to guard you. The peace of God is going to guard you. That's a military word. It connotes an army surrounding a fortress. Now, if you had an army surrounding you, would you fear danger? You'd be able to have poise. You'd be able to rest, kick back. Now, wait. We live in a world that's always looking for an escape. Today, we look at trouble, and the first thing we do is we go to the internet and we try to get out of the trouble. What do people in these circumstances do to get out of this mess? Today, there are people, they're working all week. Why? We, you have coworkers like this, right? You have people who, you know people who work all week. Why? Just so that they could drink and get high all weekend. Why? What are they doing? Well, we worked all day. We worked all week to battle on our own, and now we don't want to face, I've done it all week. I faced reality and danger and the potential realities of life all week, all the difficulties and the hardships. As I get into the weekend, I just want to forget these things. I want to escape from these things. I just want to get these things out of my mind. We don't want fears invading our heart and our mind. We understand the reality that these things enter our heart and our mind. We don't want it into our mind and so in our hearts, so we escape them. Paul says, that's not how you find poise. That is not how you get resilient. Real peace. Now, let me talk to you like, like an older person, okay? I mean, I'm a little older than you, right? Let me talk to you a little bit like an older person. Some of you are saying, well, I don't, I don't drink. I don't get high. But you really, really pursue boyfriends. And you really, really pursue girlfriends. Or you really, really pursue um, uh, that degree. You really, really want to live in a particular neighborhood because that neighborhood's safe. In fact, if you get into that neighborhood, you made it. That's what's going to make you Okay. That's what's going to make you feel all right about yourself. That's what's going to make you feel secure and safe. Is it? Real peace is not running from your fears. It's not even running from reality for that matter. Fears are just reality, your imagination of reality, just going out of control. That's what fear is. It's not necessarily real. But some of us, we... Paul, the Apostle Paul says real peace isn't even running from reality, but to have the presence of a living power entering into your heart and thus into your mind, shaping your approach to reality, taking over your life. 
The Bible speaks about your heart as a control center. So as this living power enters into your heart, shapes your mind, takes care of your approach, takes over your approach, and having that power, on one hand, you're facing your fears, you're facing your reality on one hand, but on the other hand, facing a deeper reality beneath the visible reality. The deeper power beneath the power of those fears. And having that power, the presence of God, it acts as a guard surrounding your heart and your mind, protecting you from invasive desires, that's the heart, invasive thoughts, fears, that's the mind. In other words, why do we need that? It's because our hearts and our minds are always distracted. Always divided. By nature, your heart is always falling apart. By nature, your mind is always scattered, always all over the place. It's the Greek word for anxiety. Anxiety is natural. It's not the way God designed it. It's not what God desires for his people. It is the result of when we chose to rebel against God, and we said, hey, you know what? I can do this better. That's essentially what Adam and Eve said in the Garden of Eden, first book of the Bible, Genesis, right? First three chapters for that matter, right? God had a plan. Eve had other plans. Eve said, hey, I'd know better. And from the moment that they chose to rebel against God, the moment we chose to do that, we've now taken matters into our own hands in this dangerous, broken world. Yes, it's natural. It's going to be natural. Right? Most of us act on our fears. Fears that sit in your heart and your mind. Most of us act on our desires. I need to have this person in my life. I need to have this person all the time in my life. You know why? Because you're scared. You're scared of being alone. You're scared of being abandoned. You're scared of, of going through a dangerous world. Our hearts already know. It's, our, it's in our spiritual DNA. We understand. We get that reality. And Paul says, I want you to worship. I want you to pray. I want you to be thankful. I want you to go to God. In fact, this is the most important thing. It's more important than anything that you find urgent in your life. And if you do, you will find a deeper poise, a deeper resilience, a deeper foundation that is stronger than any storm you face, any tumult you face, any fire that is, that is raging in your life. And that's going to transcend all human reason, all human logic, all human understanding. That's peace. How do you grow it? How do you cultivate it? Well, verse 6, Paul says, don't be anxious. Don't fall apart, right? Don't fall apart. Don't be torn to pieces. But by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So one, every aspect of this takes thanksgiving. On one hand, Paul says, don't be anxious. On the other hand, he says, with thanksgiving. In fact, not only don't be anxious, but be thankful in presenting your request to God. Be thankful in coming to God and praying to him. So he takes prayer and thanksgiving, that's the heart. And he pits it against your anxiety. And he says, that comes first. 
Now, we say, well, that kind of seems illogical. I mean, wouldn't it make more sense to make your requests, to see what God does, to receive answers to prayer, and then be thankful? That's how we operate in this world. You want something? As a child, you want this? Your parents, you, you ask your parents? You wait to see what their parents do? Your parents give it to you, and you say thank you. And if they don't give it to you, I mean, you say all sorts of stuff, right? You think all sorts of stuff, right? That's what we do. Paul says, no. You, th- you thank God as you're making the request. Well, why in the world would I want to do that? Why would we do that? Because we've been saying that when you're in a valley, when you're in the valley, it's dark, it's treacherous, it's dangerous, and you don't have a full view of things. Look, why do we trust? Why do we trust? Because the greatest, most innocent person that ever lived was killed. He was crucified for us. And yet, God took that greatest injustice, the death of Jesus, and he turned it into the greatest redemption, the greatest power, the greatest salvation. But did people see that at that moment? No, they didn't. You know what they did? They betrayed Jesus. They abandoned Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They mocked Jesus. They insulted Jesus. They watched him die. They watched them die. Why? Because they couldn't see. They were in the valley. They didn't have a full view. But God was working even that out for his glory and their good. God has a full view of the mountain. He's got a plan. My favorite preacher, Tim Keller, he says, well, I'm going to paraphrase what he says. But basically he says something like this. He says, well, God will give you everything that you desire. God will give you everything that you ask for if you knew everything that God knows, if you see everything that God sees. It's not about having a full view in the valley, but having the presence of the ultimate shepherd, the king of the universe, the one who stands at the top of the mountain, peers and watches and engages with you in the valley. And knowing that, we can make requests and we can be thankful as we make requests. Why? Because we know that God, whatever it is that we're asking for, we're asking in the valley. We're asking based on what we see. We don't see very far ahead, but we're asking the person who sees everything. So we're thanking ahead of time, knowing that everything he's doing, he's working everything for his glory and for your good. We thank because we trust. We, thank, we are thankful because we trust. Gratitude is of the heart because you are trusting. And, God, and Paul says, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your mind. It's a matter of the heart. Gratitude is of the heart. But then secondly, verse 8, say, he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Paul's not saying, basically what he's saying is you need to think about things and then put it into practice. Paul's not saying, look, just, you know, think the way we think. Well, it's like a, it's like a glimpse, and we say, ah, oh, I feel better now. That's a poor translation. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I want you to deeply reflect on these things. I want you to get into God's word. I want you to think about it. I want you to dwell on it. It's real truth. It's real promises. The promises, the ultimate promises have been answered by God. 
Sin has been destroyed. Death has died on the cross. You should be able to trust this. I want you to flood your minds with the truth and the reality of the gospel. Today, we are so easily overwhelmed, aren't we? We are so easily overwhelmed. We say, bro, bro, I don't want to think about that. It's overwhelming. That's what we say, right? And we shut down. Isn't that what we do? You sit there and you're talking to somebody and you say, well, you know, I want you to think about this and this can cascade into this. And that's why they're counseling you and they're saying, hey, I want you to be careful. And they go, bro, you're going too, that's too much. But spiritual maturity is not an absence of mind. It's a presence of mind to think, to reflect deeply about what? Paul says, I want you to think about what is good. I want you to think about what is beautiful. It goes against the world. Why? Because if you go with the popular view of the world, the popular worldview says, well, we're all here by accident. We're just chemicals that have somehow collided and became life. So there's no meaning. Life is meaningless. And if you believe that, then one day it's all going to come to an end. This is just a period of evolution, and we're just all going to evolve into nothingness eventually at some point. And if you believe that, then, well, then I don't want to dwell on the end, that when I die, there's nothing that there's no meaning or purpose to any of my suffering, that this is pretty much my lot in life and nothing's going to happen afterwards. So what a miserable, I mean, if you live with that, you're never, there's, there's never any peace. You're just going to want to escape the thought of the fact that this life is meaningless. You are suffering in it and there's nothing afterwards. That's depressing, they say. So just indulge. Like I know there's a God, some of you say, and I know I kind of get the gospel, but then when you're in it with that person, you just, your heart just goes all over the place. Your mind just goes all over the place. That's not a lack of faith, by the way. That's called resistance. Paul says, real peace is the opposite of that. Christians get peace by thinking about the implications of what you believe. Because if you believe, you know, we live in a world that says, I don't want to think about the implications. I don't want to think about the nothingness, the meaninglessness. But Christians, they dwell on the implications of what they believe. Because if you believe that God is the Father Almighty, that our Father is, is, is God Almighty, and that he is the maker of heaven and earth, that he made you, that means that he's committed to you, and that he's present here in our brokenness, in our sin, and on top of that, he's made a rescue for you. He has chosen to save you from your sin by sending his own son. And so we say we believe in Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, Lord of the universe, savior of the world, we say, that he came and that he died and that on the third day he resurrected from the dead. He ascended on the he into, into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And then he's come to judge. Well, we think, well, judge, that means like, oh, like judgment. Yes, it does kind of mean that. But it also means that he is king. That he's the ruler over all things, including your suffering. Every single thing that you endure right now, he is in control. He is on the throne. 
That if you believe, look, do you, want, do you know what I just did? I just recited like half the Apostles' Creed to you. Do you know that? That thing, that, that those verses that you memorized growing up, that's why we do that here. That's why we don't ignore those kind of things. I know it was written thousands of years ago, but there's a reason why it was written thousands of years ago. We have to remind ourselves. You know why? You know how? We think. We're constantly thinking about these things. Thinking about the implications. What are they? You have meaning. You are not alone. God has not abandoned you. You matter to the king, the Lord of the universe. He is present in your life. You know what that means? This visible world is not all there is. There is a reality beneath the visible reality. Well, I believe that, Pastor, but I, 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 don't, I still don't have peace. You know why? Because you, you understand the truth cognitively. It's stored cognitively, but you're not dwelling on it. You're not thinking the way Paul's asking you to think about it. Because if you did, it would give you a greater peace, a greater poise, a greater resilience, a greater confidence, a greater, a greater strength. And so in verse 6, Paul says, I want you to make your request to God. To make a request, you've got to think. But he says, do it with thanksgiving. Right? That's the heart. Verse 8, he says, I want you to think about whatever is, is, is right and noble. He says, whatever is good, I want you to think about these things. These things go together. And he says, when you do, the peace of God will guard your life. Verse 8, what are we supposed to think about? What are we supposed to dwell on? What are we actually supposed to get our heads flooded with? What are we supposed to do that? He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. That's what he says. He says, I want you to dwell on these things. But then, so I'm going to, let's break this apart a little bit. He says, whatever is true and noble and right, those are the things that's, that those are things that, those are our thoughts. Truth, nobleness, rightness. But then he gets into whatever is pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Those are the things that move you. He's talking about your affections. He's talking about your loves. Your heart and your mind. You see that? You know why? Because love shapes you. Thoughts don't always shape you. You have people who come to you, and um, some of you have people who come to you for counsel. And you're kind of explaining, well, you came to me for counsel, so here's my counsel. And you can tell somewhere in there, because you've talked to enough people in your life, they're not really getting it. Right? You know why? Uh, let's go the other way. There are people here who seek counsel. And you go to somebody, you ask for counsel, and they're, and they're telling you their counsel, and you agree. You actually agree with what they're saying. But then you don't do it. You know why? Because thoughts don't change you. Agreement doesn't change you. Your loves change you. And if your loves tell you to do something else, you will do it. And if you love something more than that, you will do it, right? It's true, right? Love shapes you. Paul's saying that just knowing will not shape you. 
but knowing and loving. That is going to beget peace. It gives birth to fruit, of which some of that is peace. And that leads to and drives poise. How? John Calvin, great theologian, he said that our hearts are idol factories. Idol factories. That, in other words, we're constantly taking even good things. He says the problem could be bad things in your life, but it's not always. It's mostly, most of the time, not the bad things that get you. It's the good things that we take that we're trying to get a sense of worth from. And so he says, we are worshiping good things. We are making good things in our lives, blessings in our lives, ultimate things. In fact, the very word worship comes from an old lingo in Latin that means worth-ship because we're constantly trying to ascribe a sense of worth from these things that we love. So a lot of us think the solution is, well, then I got to stop loving it, right? And you can't. I said, well, then I got to act like at least that I, that I don't love these things too much. And so in a sense, what we're doing is we're gaming the system. We think that if we stay below the radar community-wise, hey, no one's going to bug me if I don't act like I love something too much. It's almost like an act. That's why we develop a lot of insincerity and incongruity even in the Christian, even in Christian community, right? Because we're trying to present the face, the appearance of people who've been changed by the gospel and not actually be changed by the gospel. Um, <clears throat> so we're gaming the system. We're trying to stay below the radar, and so we don't act, and yet, but we need counsel around this, right? We need to, and we love these things, right? And so what we're doing is we're repressing our desires. We're repressing our desires. We're not honest with ourselves nor with others, nor with God, but God sees and God knows, and yet we're repressing ourselves. I'm going to give you an example. You get promoted. You get promoted, and it's exciting. You, we need to celebrate those things. But then I don't want to act like I love success too much. In fact, there's always a part of us that says, because if I act too excited about it, I might lose it. You're dating. You're excited about it. You should celebrate that. But then I don't want to act like I'm too excited about that because then it looks like I'm idolatrous, especially in the church. And people are going to, you know, there are people in the church that are going to come to me and tell me, oh, you love this thing too much. And, and then they're going to try to break me up, break us up. You know, that there's like a thing in your heart that's saying that. It's your heart. It's invading your heart. You see that? You see how that works? And so what happens is um, we, we are afraid that this, we're going to lose these things what happens? We get anxious. And we end up going into the cycle of working. Working on one side to appease people and working on the other side to, to keep these things that we love and we hide them and we repress them. Now, I want to ask you, I just painted you a picture. Do you think that's healthy? And yet, I bet, actually, I know all of us have something, something that we love like that. And it's killing us. Are you hearing me? What is this? I, I'm like, I'm like frozen. I'm like riding. Like, <laughs> <clears throat> I 
when these good things happen, we tend to downplay them. You know, and that not only makes us cold, it makes our faith cold. We look at God like a cold God. And deep inside, these things that we love, they're more real to us. They become more real to us. And so that drives our anxiety. We get more anxious. And when, the, when we're, there's a threat to those things, we, we feel like we might lose these things, we get so bitter. If you do lose it, you get so bitter. You get bitter towards God, and then you start blaming everybody else around you. It's your fault. You made me this way. If you live for success, if you live for wealth, you're going to live anxiously. You know why? Because you will never know if you ever really get there. Think about this. You will never know when you've actually arrived. You will never know how far you need to go. You will never know if you're doing enough. No, pastor, that's not true. I know, I have a number. And if I know that if I get to that number, I will have peace. Really? What did you think about that number 10 years ago? 10 years ago, look, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty old, right? 30 years ago, $100 was a lot to me. It was a lot. 20 years ago, $100 was nothing. 1000 was a lot, right? <laughs> 10 years ago, $1,000, nothing. 10000 a lot. 10000 was a lot of money. Today, 10000 not a lot. 50000 okay, it's a lot. What am I trying to tell you? What I'm trying to tell you is that your, ver- your view of success Your view of wealth today looked different 10 years ago for you, and it's going to look different 10 years from now. And at the rate you're going, your anxiety is going to increase it because you're looking around constantly in your heart. The Bible says here, your heart and your minds are divided and distracted constantly. You see that? Anxiety, Anxiety is rooted in a deep sense of uncertainty that comes from the certainty that you are weak and frail and sinful and inadequate. And so you're looking for certainty in things that unfortunately are broken and are constantly changing. Constantly changing. And so you'll never get to a point of certainty by banking your life on a foundation that is constantly shifting. You see that? That means that you will never stop working. You will never stop being anxious. The issue is not that you love success and wealth and power and a girlfriend or a boyfriend or your family. That's not the issue. The issue is that you're making those things your foundation and the very ground that you're standing on as your foundation, they're constantly shifting like sand. One circumstance may wipe it all away from you. There's only one thing that is solid as a rock. The Gospels, the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews, all the writers of the Bible, they knew it. To the point of suffering, even into death, they knew it and they still stood for it. Why? Because this foundation is so solid, death only makes you richer in it. What is it? It's the presence of God, the love of God. Well, pastor, does that mean that I shouldn't love any of these things. I can't love my family. I can't love my job, my career. Did I just say that? I didn't say that. C.S. Lewis said this. It is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for other things, that constitutes idolatry. 
You getting me? I'm not asking you to love any of those things less. I'm asking you to love God more. You understand? Paul's essentially saying that whatever is beautiful, beautiful, think on it. Really ensure that you know it. Plant it deep in your heart. He's talking about the presence of God. He's talking about the presence of Jesus in your life. Replace the word Jesus with all those words. Jesus is true. Jesus is noble. Jesus is right. Jesus is pure. Jesus is lovely. Jesus is admirable. Jesus is excellent. Jesus is, is praiseworthy. The problem is that we elevate other things above Jesus. And it disorders all of our loves. And we then, our hearts are taken everywhere. And we're distracted and divided. And we're falling apart at one circumstance. Loving, you love success. You love wealth. Intimacy with someone that's beautiful. Your family, sure, that's natural. But your love for Jesus must be ordered in a way so that your love for Jesus must be greater than all these things. And only then will it put all of your other loves in their place. Only then, because the peace of God has guarded your heart and your mind, it will guard your body too. It will guard your bodies when you are dating. It will guard your bodies when you're with other people and gathering with them. It will guard your thoughts and your fears and your jealousies and your pride and your ego and your You understand what I'm saying? That's what's going on here. Otherwise, the consequence of loving something other than God is a deeper anxiety, more work in your life. Only if you love Jesus above all these other things, only then will you never be anxious. Why? Because whether you have these things or not, whether you lose these things if you had it, whether you never get them at all, in Jesus, he is all of these things to a greater degree than you could ever dream. You have to reflect and just dwell on the beauty of Jesus. When you see, you realize he is far greater than all these things. What is the solution then to practical peace? Paul says that I want you to pray with thanksgiving. Reflect and dwell on the beauty of God, the beauty of Jesus as greater than anything else that you've ever loved, greater than anything else that you ever love right now. And then you will love Jesus above all these things. Put it into practice. Just love it in a practical way. You get it? Let's pray. No, if you've been here long enough, you know we're not just going to pray with that. If, you've been, if you're new to Metro, you know we're not just going to, I'm going to tell you right now, we're never going to end a sermon like that. We need to talk about the power. How do you get it? You can't end with just, we'll do this. Because you're going to fail. You, you don't see the road. You're going to be bitter. You're going to be even more anxious. Paul doesn't say, just do this, and you're going to be fine. He says, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, you need to experience the beauty of Jesus. You need to discover more and more the beauty of Jesus. You need to know the beauty of Jesus in a way that it is rooted in deep. How? Look at Jesus at Gethsemane. What do you see? What do you see? My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In other words, I am overwhelmed, he says. I'm falling apart. I'm being torn to pieces. My soul is dying. 
Look at Jesus at the cross. What do you see? The wrath of God is pouring out on Jesus, and he's receiving there all the consequences. He became a curse, which is really to say that he has suffered the penalty, suffering the curse for all of our sins. And so on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that means? He's saying, God is my center. He is my greatest love. I've centered my life. He is my ultimate foundation. There's no one I desire more than God. And God is true. God is noble. God is right. God is pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. And I want more and more that he is perfect and he is true. Jesus is saying, I'm the only true and noble and right and admirable and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy and pure person that ever walked this earth. No one deserves the presence of God more than Jesus. And yet on the cross, he says, I'm empty. I've been forsaken by God. I've lost the presence of God. Why? so you could have the presence of God. I've lost peace. I'm falling apart. I'm overwhelmed. Why? So you would have a peace that will guard you into eternity. I've been forsaken by the Father. And so he is plunging into a darkness. And do you know on the cross, it got dark. And he says, my life is shaking. And do you know the ground shook? It said the rocks split. The holy temple curtain tore. Dead people were coming out of the graves. He said, my body is falling apart. I'm bleeding. I'm dying. I'm suffocating. I'm being torn to pieces, and yet now my soul is being ripped apart. This is the ultimate storm. This is the ultimate turbulence. This is the ultimate misery. Why? He gave up that peace so that we could have peace. He was forsaken by his ultimate love so that we would have the ultimate love, never be forsaken. And yet, do you know on the cross, Jesus still did not sin. His heart and his mind were still undivided. Do you know, I will, I will propose to you, submit to you, that he was still thankful on the cross. How do you know that? Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was suffering. He bore our sins, and yet he was satisfied as he was looking out and knowing and trusting that many will be justified, many will be saved, that you and I would be redeemed. It satisfied him. It gave him peace. Still, underneath the screaming and the dying and the agony and the forsakenness, there was still a heart of trust, a resilience. To the end, Jesus Christ trusted that God would, uh, would live out his promises. And that his suffering would be for God's glory and our good. And it satisfied him. And so when, you're on the cross, when he's on the cross, you can see him constantly thanking and praying and thinking and reflecting and reciting. He was reciting Psalm 22. He was reciting God's promises on the cross. In the moment of his greatest suffering, he was guarding his heart in his mind. And now, he guards yours. Even as the father departed from him, even his body and soul were falling apart, and he did it for you. And to the degree, 
to the degree that you see Jesus doing that for you in his ultimate suffering, Jesus will be lovely and beautiful and pure. Oh, you can thank him. You can dwell on that. And you dwell on it more and more. You gotta break out of that cycle by dwelling on Christ more. And you can cultivate peace. You can think. You can think. You can pray. You can love. And so the peace of God and the presence of God will then guard you. The Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. Look to the beauty of Jesus. Let the peace of God guard your hearts and minds in him. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, I have learned. What? It is well. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Let's pray.